What great reminders, what great encouragement, even as Sam prayed. And I am thrilled now uh, to have the opportunity to open up God's Word with all of you. So if you have your Bible, you want to turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. It's um, pretty amazing how we've done so much here to our campus, and we give God praise for that. Just a blink of an eye, the campus has been transformed, and there's still much more to come. You continue to pray uh, for the Lord's wisdom and provision as we make these uh, adjustments to our campus. Well, this week was a uh, pretty significant week, especially if you are a basketball fan. Yes, yes, you, you know, you should know that I would probably bring this up. Um, the National Basketball Association, on Tuesday, February 8th, there's a guy by the name of um, LeBron James. I know some people do not like LeBron. A lot of people don't like LeBron. I am a, I'm a big-time Kobe fan. Um, I do like LeBron, but this week is significant because LeBron James, he broke Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's scoring record. And many of you have maybe heard that, but what you maybe didn't hear was the epic and what people say is somewhat magical way that it happened. You say, what, what do you mean by that? Well, to the casual observer, people um, learn about this record breaking, but don't know that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar held this scoring record for 38 years. LeBron James was born 38 weeks after Kareem broke the record. LeBron broke Kareem's record on the 38th day of the year. While he's 38 years old, he scored 38 points in the third quarter with eight seconds on the shot clock. And he broke the record of 38,000 points. Yes, there's 388 on top of that. My question is, do you know what that means? <laughs> if you can see my notes really big, it says it means nothing. <laughs> now, as, as much as um, we can appreciate something like that, it is a, is a pretty decent feat for sure. Um, but there's some things that bother me. One is that LeBron calls himself King James. The other is that he is um, self-identified as the chosen one. He's got a big tattoo on his back that says chosen one. The truth is that LeBron James will be forgotten. His scoring title, although it was impressive, will maybe be broken, likely be broken. And there's nothing in his achievement that is for the glory of God and for your eternal good. Let me tell you about something I think is much more impressive that happened on Tuesday night. We hosted a young single girl named Christine for dinner. She's preparing to go to the mission field in Papua New Guinea. She's going through an agency called To Every Tribe. I've had good interaction with one of the leaders in the ministry, he's a friend, and his ministry, their ministry is to send missionaries to the unreached people of the world with the gospel. 
And on Tuesday night, there's no fanfare, there's, there's no reporters, there's no picture taking, just um, some of my wife's have only got soup and some listening ears as we sat around the kitchen table and listened to this young single woman express her desire to see Jesus Christ glorified, magnified in Papua New Guinea. And as we sat there and we listened, I knew the game was on, but my heart and my mind and my focus was dialed in on this sweet girl. Listen, no scoring title, no Super Bowl championship will ever come close to the thrilling reality of someone, a disciple of Jesus Christ, who wants to make much of him where he is not known. And I think that brings us to our text this morning in Luke chapter 2, in verse 21. Last week, we celebrated Christ's birth in Luke, 21, one through, or Luke 2, 1 through 20, but this week, we're going to continue to celebrate the salvation that Jesus' birth brings. And so would you please one more time with me stand and let us read Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 35. Here's God's word for us. It says, and when eight days were fulfilled so that they could circumcise him, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of their cleansing according to the law of Moses were fulfilled, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to that was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the comfort of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law. Then he took him into his arms and blessed him and said, Now, Master, you are releasing your slave in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were marveling at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul as well, that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You may have a seat. And would you please join me as we ask the Lord to bless our time in the word. Father, what a tremendous, tremendous text of Scripture. Father, we are eager to hear from you, so by the power of your Spirit, would you enlighten our hearts, turn our attention to Jesus, our salvation, so that we would rejoice in him, we would glory in him, and we would seek to leave here wanting to make much of him. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, this section, even as I read it, we understand that it's got a lot of interesting aspects to it. A lot of people mentioned, a lot of details mentioned. 
And after reading something like this, it could be kind of hard to focus in on, well, what's, what's, what's the main point? Well, what's, what's the focal point of the text? Should, should we focus on Joseph and Mary and their faithfulness to keep the Torah? Should, should the focus be on Simeon and later on Anna and God's blessing on the, route, the righteous and devout remnant of Israel? Should we focus on Simeon's song? This is now the fourth and final Christmas carol that is in Luke, and it's known as the Nuke Dementis. Again, another Latin phrase which just takes the first words of the Latin, which says, now you are dismissing. That would be a worthy endeavor. Or maybe we should unpack what it means to be spirit-led, to be spirit-filled, to be directed by the Spirit. Or maybe we can consider the nature of prophecy. Another big question as we're going to encounter Anna is, what does that mean that Anna was a prophetess? See, all those questions are certainly worth investigating, and we'll think much about them as we move through our text today, but just so we don't get sidetracked and we have a clear vision of what is before us, let me propose to you that God's intention in this text is himself. God wants to put himself on display, and specifically, it is his salvation that is the centerpiece of this text. Let me see if I can just show that to you from the word of God here. Look at verse 21. The baby's name is Jesus, which means Yahweh is salvation. And this name was given by an angel of God to Mary and Joseph. Everything Mary and Joseph do is according to the law of God. They come to the temple of God in verse 22 in Jerusalem. They present their child to God, who is also the son of God. In verse 23, it is the Lord that opens the womb. Jesus is called holy to the Lord. Verse 24, it is the Lord that made provision for the poor to worship. Verse 25, we're introduced to a man of God who's filled with the Holy Spirit of God and directed to the temple of God. And he reveals that he will not see death until he sees the Lord's Christ. Verse 28, Simeon is blessed by God. Verse 29, he acknowledges God as master. And verses 30 through 32, we see that he acknowledges God as Savior, that the Savior is the Savior of Israel, the Savior of the Gentiles, and the Savior of the world. And so again, when we say, well, what is this text really about? It's about God, and it's about his salvation. That's what it's about. God prophesied about salvation. He, he prepared this salvation, and God provided this salvation. And now, right in front of us, we have the promise is here in the presence of a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. So if you're taking notes, you might want to jot this down. Here's our main idea in Luke 2, 21 through 35. We learn that salvation has come in the person of Jesus Christ, and that should compel us to celebrate our salvation, but not just that. It should call us to have others experience it for themselves. We learn that salvation has come in the person of Jesus Christ, and that should compel us to celebrate our salvation and call others to experience it for themselves. And what we'll do is we'll just take a look at three major headings in this text. First, the presentation of the Lord in verses 21 through 24. Then we'll look at the expectation of the Lord in verses 25 through 27. 
and then the proclamation of the Lord in verses 28 through 32. The presentation of the Lord, the expectation of the Lord, and the proclamation. So let's jump right in. Look there at verse 21. The presentation of the Lord, what we see here is the procedure of this presentation. When eight days were fulfilled so that they could circumcise him, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And what I want to point out as we begin here is that both um, verses 21, 22, they begin with this phrase, and then the days were fulfilled. And the days were fulfilled. This clues us into a few insights regarding Mary and Joseph. First of all, they are aware and attentive to God's Torah. They, they know what God requires of them, and they're eager to do it. They are immediate in their obedience. In fact, five times Luke tells us that they did something for their son in accordance with God's law. So look there at verse 22. They're cleansing according to the law of Moses. In 23, it says it was written in the law of the Lord. In verse 24, it says according to what was said in the law of the Lord. And then if you look down at verse 27, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple, and it says there to carry out for him the custom of the law. And verse 39, and when they had finished everything according to the law of the Lord. You say, well, why does Luke record all this? Because he wants you to know that Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, are law-abiding Jews, and they are faithfully practicing all that was commanded of them. And the first thing they do is they bring Jesus a week after he's born to be circumcised. So the text says it's the eighth day, and most likely one of the local priests in Bethlehem is performing this circumcision. And just like John was circumcised on the eighth day and named, so too is Jesus. But there's something significantly different here. You know that circumcision was a sign given to Abraham and to his seed, as the covenant of God's people. And it's not a pretty picture when you think about circumcision. We're not going to get into the details, but the priest would have taken a blade and then cut away the foreskin of his body. And so right from the get-go, there's a shedding of blood. Now, you have to ask the question, why were Jewish boys circumcised? Why this practice? Well, first of all, just to be clear, because God said so, right? We, we don't want to overcomplicate things. When God makes a command, people are to obey that command. But secondly, we know that circumcision was a symbol of the Jews' separation from the world, from the pagan world. They were cut off from the rest of the world, and they were consecrated in a unique relationship with God. And there's much more to this procedure in fulfilling God's law. But let's look there at where this presentation takes place. The place of the presentation, verse 22, it says, and when the days for their cleansing according to the law of Moses were fulfilled, they brought him up to Jerusalem. You see, five weeks after Jesus' circumcision and naming, his parents faithfully bring him to the temple. And we know from Luke chapter 2 and verse 41 that Mary and Joseph, every single year, go up to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover. 
I don't know how that works with a baby if they take Jesus with them every time to the temple. But the next time we see Jesus at the temple, he's now 12 years old. He's in the temple and he's saying some strange things like, this is my father's house. Did you not know that I had to be about my father's business? Now, why did Mary and Joseph take him to the temple after the days of cleansing? And here we see now the purpose of the presentation. Look there, verse 22. The reason for this was to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now, this is extra significant. And you say, why is that significant? Well, because this is Luke's first direct citation of the Old Testament. You see, Joseph and Mary are fulfilling two different Old Testament customs. And the first we might not be very familiar with, but it's the presentation of the firstborn. You remember in Israel's history that the firstborn of Israel were to be presented to the Lord along with a sacrifice. You see, originally God ordered that all the firstborn of every family be offered up to him. And rather than sacrificing a child, there was a substitute that was provided. Turn with me to Exodus, Exodus chapter 13. While you're turning there, listen to verse 2. It says, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both the man and the beast. And the reason? Because it belongs to me. Now look there at verse 11 in Exodus chapter 13. And follow me as I read. It says, And it will be when Yahweh brings you to the land of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, and you shall devote to Yahweh the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to Yahweh. But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with the lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And it will be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, well, what is this? Then you shall say to him, with a strong hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And it happened when Pharaoh hardened his heart with stiffness about letting us go, that Yahweh killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to Yahweh the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. And there you go. You have the history, Israel's history of this practice. And many of you know that in Numbers, things change. In Numbers 3, we learn that the entire tribe of Levi was selected in place of the firstborn to be priest. When those outside the Levite tribe had a firstborn, they had to fulfill this rite. And so that right there is the history, the presentation of the firstborn. But there's another custom, there's another ritual, there's another command to be obeyed, and that is the purification after childbirth. And that is in Leviticus 12. You didn't wake up this morning thinking that you'd be in Exodus and Leviticus, but this is important for us to understand. Turn to Leviticus chapter 12 and look there at verse 6. We read here, Leviticus 12, verse 6, when the days of her cleansing are fulfilled for a son or for a daughter, 
She shall bring to the priest at the doorway of the tent of meeting a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Then he shall bring it near before Yahweh and make atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the flow of her bud. This is the law for her who bears a child, whether a male or female. Again, there's a lot of Old Testament detail there. And you say, well, why is this important? Because Luke is establishing that mom and dad are fulfilling these requirements, these laws. Now, do you see, as we read through this, there's a presentation that requires a consecration, a sacrifice, a substitution. There's a redemption payment involved. There's a ransom And then there's a freedom. All of this is pointing to the problem that sin created and the Savior who needs to come and solve this problem. And so don't miss the significance. Mary and Joseph are fulfilling God's law for their son. But this is also God's son. And God is fulfilling the law for us even as Jesus is an infant. I don't think we can fully comprehend the significance of all that. Listen, on the 40th day of the Redeemer's life, he himself is redeemed. You say, well, why would the one who redeems have to be redeemed? That's a great question. It's not because Jesus was a slave to sin. It's not because he was held captive by the enemy or that he was powerless. No, Jesus had no sin. So what's the answer then? Jesus gives that answer in Matthew chapter 3. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. And we discover this at his baptism. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13 And there we read, Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But you remember what John does in verse 14. John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time. And then he said, For in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, and then he permitted him. Now look, Jesus was circumcised. He was redeemed. He was baptized, all because he was born under the law, and he kept the law in its entirety. We know that Jesus was sinless. From the feeding trough all the way to the tomb, and the evidence of his sinlessness was his ability to keep the entire law. All 613 commandments, Jesus can say, innocent, did that, done that for you. Do you realize that? There is no salvation apart from law keeping. Several months ago, I asked that question, how are we saved? And then I kind of threw that curveball to you. I said, is it by keeping the works of the law? And people were like, no, no. And you're right. 
Not us keeping the law, but who keeps the law for us? Jesus does. He keeps every jot and tittle of the law perfectly. And so there is no salvation without law keeping. Jesus is law keeping. And here, Luke is demonstrating that his parents are even keeping the law. So that is the procedure. The firstborn, the purification laws. We looked at the place of the presentation as of the temple in Jerusalem. The purpose of the presentation was to fulfill all righteousness in keeping the law. But also notice, just this little detail, the poverty in the presentation. Look at verse 24. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. This is beautiful. God is making a provision for the lowest of low for those that don't have much. You see, salvation when it comes is not for the dignitaries, the rich, the wealthy, those who are perfectly healthy. No, when salvation comes, it is for us, sinners, poor, naked, blind, oppressed sinners. And this is just to speak to that. Leviticus 12, verse 8 it says this, but if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her, and she will be clean. Just a reminder, Jesus wasn't born into wealth, but into poverty. And when we make that connection, that connection from 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though being rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So again, Luke is helping Theophilus, and he's helping you and I to tally all of Jesus' credentials. He's obeying the law, even from birth, because his parents did exactly what was commanded. But now we move from the presentation to the expectation. Look there at verse 25. It says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the comfort of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Luke begins here with the word behold to grab our attention because this is not expected, and he wants us to pay careful consideration to what he's about to say. You see, all of this here is written for our instruction, but also to provide confidence. You know that there's no lengthy record of what Jesus did when he was young. You realize that? If you were ever to pick up one of the Gnostic Gospels, you'd encounter some very bizarre and fanciful stories about Jesus when he was young. Uh, I guess you can read this. I don't necessarily recommend it unless you want to be entertained in a bad way. The infancy gospel of Thomas, it includes all kinds of miracles that Jesus performed supposedly when he was a child. He turned clay sparrows into live sparrows on the Sabbath. So he's got some Play-Doh and he makes a little bird and, and then starts to fly. He resurrects one of his friends who fell off a roof after he was accused of pushing him off the roof. Then there's a healing of a man who cut off part of his foot while he was chopping wood. It's not comedy, it's actually in the Gnostic Gospel. He was carrying water in a cloak after accidentally breaking a water jar. He was stretching out a piece of wood to help his carpenter dad, Joseph, 
make a bed for a rich client. And then his brother James got bit by a snake, and so Jesus says, no problem. And he goes, and he blows on the wound, and James is healed. Now, we know none of that is true. And you say, well, how do we know none of that's true? Well, because the Gospel of John tells us very clearly that the wedding at Cana of Galilee is the very first miracle that Jesus performed. And so we conclude that all that God wants to tell us about Jesus as a young child before he gets into public ministry is right here in the gospel. And when we think about Jesus' infancy and childhood, certain images come to mind. But maybe the image that, come, that doesn't come to mind is Simeon and Anna. I think we skip over that. There's the shepherds and there's the magi and even the animals make it into the nativity scene and all the Christmas cards. But, but where is Simeon and Anna in all this? What do we really know about Simeon? Well, these are significant saints. And Luke's purpose for including them is significant. What do we know about Simeon? Well, I think many people think Simeon was this old, old guy, maybe a priest. One commentator I read said uh, Halal, which was a famous Jewish rabbi, was the father of Simeon, and Simeon was actually the father of Gamaliel, which is interesting. We don't know that we know for sure. But notice that the text doesn't say anything about him being old. It doesn't say anything about him being a priest. We don't know anything about his spouse or his education or his occupation. But while the scripture doesn't give us any of these outward descriptions, it does provide for us some key inward descriptions. In fact, Simeon possessed what we would say is three essential qualities for faithful Old Testament saints. It says there he's righteous and devout. He's, he's just toward man and he's devout toward God. He's living according to Torah. Second, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, he's a part of the godly remnant of Israel. Right here in the text, we learn he's anxiously awaiting the arrival of the Messiah. There, there's this, this eagerness in his waiting, this, this longing, even a daily expectation that Christ is going to come. But thirdly, the Holy Spirit is said to be upon him. And the tense of this verb is interesting because typically in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit comes for a brief time. But here, for Simeon, the Spirit is resting upon him. And Luke has already referred to the Holy Spirit several times already. Look at verse 25. The Holy Spirit was upon Simeon. 26, the Holy Spirit revealed that Simeon would not see death until he sees the Messiah. Verse 27, the Holy Spirit moved Simeon to enter the temple at the same time Jesus does. And by mentioning the Spirit three times in these verses, what Luke is making clear is that Simeon's testimony is not full of just wishful words, but this is supernatural speech. God is speaking through this man. And all throughout the first two chapters, the Spirit continues to bear witness and testify. And so he speaks through Elizabeth, and he, he speaks through Zechariah, and now he's speaking through Simeon. And you say, well, what is Simeon waiting for? And the answer there is he's waiting for the comfort of Israel. Now, your translation, if you look there at your text, it might say the consolation of Israel. 
Uh, if you have the New Living Translation, it says that he's waiting for the Messiah to come and to rescue Israel. And I like that translation because it captures the idea. Waiting for the comfort of Israel was basically another way of saying that he was waiting for the Messiah to come and liberate the nation. Skip down to Anna's words in 2.38, where it says, she continued to speak of him to all those who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. You see, the righteous remnants, the, these Jews who were longing for their Messiah, they had a lot of books that they cherished in the Old Testament. One of those books, for certain, was the book of Isaiah. And over and over again in Isaiah, God promised there would be a future comfort, a future comfort that they could bank all their hopes on. And so you'll remember these words of Isaiah 40, verse 1, comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Same exact word in the Septuagint. And we come to Isaiah 51, 3, and there we read, Indeed, Yahweh will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, all her wilderness. He will make like Eden and her desert like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and sound of a malady. God's promise to Israel as they suffered and experienced oppression was there's comfort that's coming. And there was a remnant that longed for that comfort to be actualized, to be realized. The Lord's comfort, his consolation, has now arrived. Look there at verse 26. This is one of the reasons why Simeon was waiting with such eager expectation. Verse 26, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, Simeon doesn't accidentally bump into Jesus that morning. No, this is all divine design. You say, well, how long was he waiting for the Messiah? Was it weeks? Was it months? Now, we, we infer from the text, because he says he's waiting to die, that maybe he's an old man. And when you think about me, and born in 1978, talking to my kids about how great the 80s were and how different it is from today, 40-something years of my life is pretty short. I think about some of you here with gray hair or no hair that were alive way before me, and you could talk about the 50s, and how great it was then, and you've seen how much things have changed. Well, then you think about American history and how brief that is. But Israel's history is long. And there's a lot of hurt and heartbreak and oppression and rulers who are evil. They waited. They longed for their Messiah. And here he is a baby. Now, we read about this story, and we think, what was that like every day going into the temple? I immediately think, this guy must have been weird as he's watching all the little babies come in. Is that him? Is that him? Is that him? Who's this guy who keeps, like, rejoicing with all these babies? But he finally sees him, and he's got this 
outburst of praise. God has fulfilled his promise. So Simeon, he's he's righteous, he's devout, he's a spirit-filled man who hoped in the future God had promised, and he's a model for us of devotion and faithfulness to God. And so we've seen the presentation of the Lord, the expectation of the Lord, and now lastly, let's consider the proclamation concerning the Lord there in verse 28. The first thing to see is that there's two separate blessings that he gives. Simeon gives two separate blessings. Look at verse 28. It says, he took him into his arms and blessed God. Now look down at verse 34. It says, and Simeon blessed them, speaking of Mary and Joseph. And it's important to point out that the first blessing attributes praise to God. He is worthy of blessing, but the second blessing on the parents is different. They're not being praised. Simeon is acknowledging that God has bestowed blessing on them. And that's how this proclamation is broken up. Blessing belongs to God because God provides salvation. Blessing belongs to man in that man receives salvation. That's the separate blessings. But now look at the subject of Simeon's proclamation. You say, who is the subject? And it's none other than the baby Jesus. We don't do baby dedications here. We do what we call parent dedications. But if there was any baby dedication, this would be the baby dedication of all baby dedications. I mean, it is a breathtaking image. If you just close your eyes and imagine for a second, eight days after the God of the universe came to earth, Simeon takes God in his hand. You just have to keep reminding yourself as you read that the baby that he held in his hand is the baby that upholds the entire universe, the entire cosmos. All things were created in him, through him, and for him. He sustains everything by the word of his power. That little baby that he is holding, maybe 10 pounds or less, he's holding the God of the universe which is why it's no mistake that we see his response. The slaves rest in the proclamation. Verse 29, now, master, you are releasing your slave in peace according to your word. Again, we're familiar with the story, but imagine someone saying something like that to little baby Winslow as she was just born. Master, you are now allowing your slave to depart in peace. I think Jonathan Becky would be like, okay, thank you. Give me my baby back. Such a strange thing to say. Finally, I can die. But Simeon's not some sort of weirdo. He's full of the Spirit. And he's eager to enjoy the peace that God has promised to him directly. You see, those of you that have been walking with Christ for any length of time, you know that serving the Lord is hard work. You know what it's like to fight and fight daily against sin. You know what it's like to be bombarded by temptation, to have the world come after you. You know what it's like to wrestle with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Simeon is promised peace 
And God hasn't given us revelation as to when we get to enjoy this eternal peace and we don't try to fast forward that peace. But Simeon is thrilled beyond belief because he wants it to be over. He's struggled long enough. He wants to be with Jesus, unhindered fellowship apart from sin. He's holding the Prince of Peace. The angels have sung about the peace that has come to earth, and now Simeon wants this peace now and forever. Well, the next verse, verse 30, tells us why Simeon has this inner peace because of the salvation of Simeon's proclamation. Look at verse 30. He says, For my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus, as he was a baby, he didn't have a little halo around his head. There's no little baby crown, no little baby cape. It's just a lowly couple with a baby. But he understood that this baby would provide salvation. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it? What kind of salvation did Simeon have in mind? Because there was a lot of other people that were waiting for the Messiah, but they wanted physical deliverance, physical salvation, liberation from the Roman oppressors. I'm sure Simeon understood that, but because he was filled with the Spirit, I'm convinced that the salvation he saw with the eyes of faith was more than just physical deliverance. Look, maybe he didn't understand all the details and and the timeline of Jesus' ministry, but his prophecy reveals that he was aware of a more far-reaching implication than just salvation in a physical sense. Look there at verse 31. It says, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, And here it talks about the sovereignty of the proclamation. Simeon acknowledges that God's salvation plan goes way, way, way back. And I love that word prepared. It points to the plan of God before time even began. In other words, this isn't plan B for God. It's not some unexpected twist in in God's covenant plan. No, this promise of salvation It is for all peoples, plural. You know, in Romans, Paul talks about the Gentiles being grafted in. That's not just a New Testament concept. That goes all the way back to Genesis and the promise made to Abraham and to his seed that through Abraham's seed, the Messiah would come and be a blessing to all peoples. And that's what we see in verse 32, the scope of the proclamation a light for revelation to the Gentiles. You know, the prophet Isaiah, he spoke of a future day when God would provide this very light. And this light would come through his servants. When you read through the book of Isaiah, we come across several servant songs. There's four of them. And the first one is in Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, 6 says this, I am Yahweh. I have called you in righteousness I will also take hold of you by the hand and guard you, and I will give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. And look what it says there in verse 7. To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who inhabit darkness from the prison. And you say, well, how was God specifically going to do this? Isn't this talking about Israel, the nation, the people? Yes, but there's one true Israel, and that's Jesus. He is Israel's Messiah. And in Isaiah 49, we have the second of the four songs, and there we read this in verse 6. He says, 
Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to cause the preserved ones of Israel to return? I will also give you as a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. And then we wonder why everyone gets so ticked off at Jesus when he stands up and says, I am the light of the world. And isn't it interesting that people love darkness rather than coming to the light? Because by coming to Jesus, our sins are exposed. But that's part of the splendor of the proclamation. Look at verse 32. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. Listen, salvation is not nationalistic. People who say, oh, God bless America, God bless them. God's not going to bless America unless America repents. Salvation is not for just all the nation, but Israel's glory is their Messiah. Blessing, honor, glory is given to God, and Israel is a recipient, not because of how great they are, but because of the Messiah that came through the nation Christine told us this past Tuesday that there are over 800 different languages in Papua New Guinea. And when I look at this text, that Jesus has come to be a light to the nations and for the glory of your people Israel, I get so excited that the gospel gets to get into those unreached groups in the world and is fulfilling this very prophecy that he's going to be a light to the nations. Simeon tells Jesus' parents that this baby is going to bring worldwide salvation. And look at verse 33. We read, And his father and mother were marveling at the things which were being said about him. That's an understatement. No one has ever said anything like this about a child. And verse 34, it says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. Listen, the fact that Jesus came and brought salvation is the greatest news in all the world. It is the gospel. And yet at the same time, the gospel offends. The gospel is not good news to people who don't think they need good news. The greatest message of the gospel is you are a dirty, rotten, godless sinner. It starts right there. And the only hope for you to have a relationship with God is by recognizing that and submitting and falling to your knees in humble acknowledgement and affirmation that I am a wretched sinner, that I have fallen short of the glory of God, that I have not kept the laws and the requirements that God demands. It's very similar to Mary's words, as Mary says here in Luke 1.52, that God has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. You see, Jesus has come as a stumbling block. Simeon's prophecy reinforces Mary's prediction that this great reversal that happens, happens as a result of us acknowledging that we are low, that we must humble ourselves. But there's something else I want you to notice here in this text. It's not the rise and fall, but the fall and rise of many in Israel. 
Because the promise is that if you humble yourself before the Lord, he will exalt you. He he will lift you up. This is the paradox of the upside-down kingdom. The first will be what? Last. Those who lose their lives will find it. Those who are humbled will be exalted. But notice another detail in the text. Simeon is only speaking to Mary here. You say, well, what's interesting about that? Well, it just gives us a hint that Joseph was probably not around. He didn't witness Jesus becoming the stumbling block that he ultimately would become. In fact, that word appointed here in verse 34, it has this idea of laying down or setting into place. And that reminds us of Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Listen to what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. It says this, For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes upon him will not be put to shame. This precious value then is for you who believe. Amen. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this stumbling, they were also appointed. The very, very hard truth that Simeon tells Mary is, this is the greatest news in all the world. Salvation is here, but not everyone is going to embrace salvation. In other words, not everyone is going to embrace Jesus. And so he finishes his prophecy with a very difficult word. And this is the sorrow in the proclamation. Look at verse 35. And a sword will pierce through your own soul as well, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now listen, Luke, he doesn't mention Mary's presence at the cross. We learned that from another gospel. But we know from John that she's there. And the word here for sword is actually spear. And imagine this, moms, watching your son on a cross that he doesn't deserve. And she sees that spear pierce his side. And Simeon tells Mary here, this is going to pierce your very soul. I think if we were to transport ourselves at Golgotha on that dark, gloomy day, Mary would have preferred being stabbed with a spear than watching her sinless son suffer on the cross. Think about this. Mary was the only person on earth who witnessed both Jesus' birth and Jesus' death. But Mary would realize that that was necessary in order for her to experience salvation. Listen to this, church. Listen to this if you're visiting. No one is saved because Jesus is born. You are saved when you look to that born child, the child who brings salvation, and you submit to his lordship. 
You confess your sin. You bow the knee to Jesus. So let's close with this question. Have you done that? Have you seen God's salvation? Jesus came to the earth, and the majority of people missed him. They missed him. At best, they misunderstood him. You remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus? They are so bummed out. Have you not heard all that this Jesus did? It was our hope. It was our expectation that he was our deliverer, that he would bring redemption. And Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, so blind to the scriptures. Did you not know that those spoke of me? That the Son of Man had to die. He had to be crucified. If you don't misunderstand him, there are those that just malign him. What a joke. What a fantasy. Look, the Bible says the road is broad that leads to destruction, and many will choose it because they're unwilling to set their eyes on Jesus' salvation. Let me show you this picture. Back to LeBron James. This historic shot. The most fascinating thing to me about LeBron's shot was not the fadeaway. He's done that countless times. The most fascinating thing to me is the fans. The fans. Thousands and thousands of fans are there to witness this great event. But there's only one person in that picture who is not distracted by their stupid phone. Everyone has got a phone, and they're watching this thing through a little tiny screen. That is how they're choosing to observe this great event. Phil Knight, who is the co-founder of Nike, he's seen in this picture as the only guy not watching this moment through a phone. No distractions, no hindrances, just the joy of the moment. And so Nike, in typical Nike fashion, capitalizes, and they say, not just do it, but just enjoy it. This picture reminded me of Simeon this week. Here's an old man who saw the Lord's salvation. He truly saw something special, something eternal, something universal. He saw the Lord's salvation, and he experienced perfect peace. Listen, church, true peace, true rest, True joy only comes to those who, like Simeon, understand that God gave the greatest gift at Christmas in giving his son, who is our salvation. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are amazed and wowed at the realities that are here in this text. And Father, I'm aware that in a room this size, there might be some who are sitting here who have yet to experience your salvation in Christ. Father, I'm confident that very much like Simeon, you brought them here this morning to hear that their biggest need is not to have a saved marriage or saved friendship or saved job or saved financial situation, but God, their greatest need is the salvation of their souls. 
And Father, because we know that you are the only one that can provide that, we pray for your mercy and grace, that you would open up blind eyes, that you would cause there to be a brokenness of hearts, contrition, repentance, of turning in humility to embrace the incarnate Son who came to give his life. Oh, Father, it's only because you have embraced us in the gospel that we can ever experience and know the kind of peace that Simeon experienced. And Father, what an assurance, what a joy to know that our salvation in Christ is secure and that one day, whether near or far, we will be able to enjoy that perfect peace with you forever in heaven. And so for that, Lord, we say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.